Good morning. On this Father's Day, we get to come before the Father, the perfect Father, from whom every fatherhood in heaven on earth is named. We get to hear from Him and receive from Him. I thought about ending the sermon series as abruptly as the book of Jonah and just doing a Father's Day sermon. However, we will finish and we will see that God's Word does speak to the fathers in this place and and to the mothers and to the men and to the women and to the, the young ones. His Word is for all of us. And so in keeping with the sort of tradition over these last three weeks, now the fourth Uh, Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. As we look forward to getting back into Colossians, I hope to begin and end with Colossians as we move into Jonah chapter 4 together this morning. I want to read from Colossians 1, from verses 24 through 29. God's word says this, Paul writes, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ And for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What a great portion of scripture. And again, reminds us that this gospel is intensely personal and incredibly global. We see these themes woven over and over, even in our passage that we read as a body this morning. Paul calls it the mystery hidden for ages. And for generations, and can you imagine waiting generation after generation, age after age, for this gospel to be unveiled right through history, through Abraham and Moses and to Jonah and the Ninevites and right up to the day of Christ. And as Paul writes this and into our day, this unveiling of Christ, and at just the right time, God made it known among the Gentiles The nations, how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. That's the hope of glory, it's Christ. So this mystery of Christ in us, hope of glory yet to come, hope of glory yet being revealed in us and through us as Christ changes us into his image. And with this in Paul's mind, because he knows it's true, He can write in verse 24 that he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake. This is very crucial even as we think about Jonah today because Paul is rejoicing in suffering for the sake of others. 
He would rather suffer so that the gospel would take root in God's people than to sit at home in comfort, not reaching people, or to brood in his suffering and his affliction. And yet in all of his sufferings, he knows that ultimately he is participating in the sufferings of Christ. And his sufferings were at the hand of others. And he suffered gladly. How is it possible to suffer gladly when your affliction is at the hands of others? Because the treasure of Christ is more precious and was more precious to Paul than his own life and his own comfort. The treasure of Christ was greater than all things he might face, in hunger and thirst and with plenty. And the gospel message to the nations was worth pouring himself out for, even in his affliction, even when he was opposed. Today we're going to journey with Jonah. We're gonna see that God's steadfast love We're going to see Jonah's disappointment with his circumstances and with God, and yet that God's steadfast love is better than our circumstances. We're going to see Jonah's heart revealed, and we're going to see our hearts revealed. And we're going to see God's gracious mercy to Jonah. We're going to see that God's steadfast love is committed to going into the deep places, whether it's the bottom of the sea or the bottom of the human heart, God enters in and he draws out that we might be changed, that we might be held captive no longer in the prisons of our own hearts. So as we prepare to receive from God's interaction with Jonah, we wanna ask ourselves, how do we respond to the sufferings and afflictions in our lives? In the past, in the present, And how do we respond to others, especially those who have hurt us, those who disappoint us, those who make us angry, and those that we just want to see changed so badly? And what do we do when we're disappointed with God, especially when God does not meet up to our expectations in the big things or in the little things? So with that, let's pray together and we'll enter into Jonah. And so Father, on this day, we remember you are good and gracious Father. You whose delight it is to redeem what is broken in, in earthly fatherhood and to yet choose to reveal yourself through unworthy vessels. And it is your kindness to reveal yourself through mothers and through daughters and sons and children and through your people. It's your delight to reveal yourself through your word and through the stories of those who've gone before. And so, Father, would you open our eyes to behold you and to behold the glory of Jesus? And by your spirit, would you change us? By your spirit, would you reach into the deep places of our own hearts and meet us because you know the needs of each one here. May your word be alive as we look at it this morning. In Jesus' name, for his glory, amen. 
If you're joining us for the first time, over the past three weeks together, we've been journeying with a prophet named Jonah. And we have followed Jonah. And we've seen through Jonah that God is a God of great reversals. He loves to to turn things upside down. He doesn't act according to how we might think or want or expect, but always consistent with his nature that does not change. This is important as we enter into our passage, that truth is foundation. We saw this in chapter one as Jonah tried to run away from God's calling and his command. Through Jonah's disobedience, he brings about suffering and affliction in the lives of others. And yet God is at work in it and through it to bring about good. And he works a deliverance and a salvation that is for a greater good than if Jonah had even obeyed the first time. That's mind-blowing, and yet that's God, the God of reversals. We saw God's mercy to the sailors and to the captain. We saw it to Jonah in a most unexpected way as he goes down into the sea, and God raises him up, and through Jonah's poetic prayer as he cries out for God's mercy, we learned that these two key truths are for us as they were for Jonah that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. And we learned that salvation belongs to the Lord. And we watched this play out in chapter three as Jonah enters into Nineveh and the most unexpected people in the world turn from violence and evil to the living God. We watch as a king abandons all things and lays down his pride and his authority and humility leads a people in repentance. They forsake idols and they gain the hope of God's hesed, his steadfast love. The story has not been about Jonah and a whale and it's not even been about Jonah and the Ninevites. It's been about a great and sovereign and awesome God who pursues people through his sovereign grace. And he pursues and he pursues and he pursues and he transforms. Because he doesn't just pursue hoping, he pursues with a purpose. And his purpose is always transforming and always unto great good and his glory. And we've beheld it through these chapters. And hopefully with me you've stood in awe of God as he has worked in the nations and in the life of this one man. Stubborn, as my Ugandan brothers and sisters would say. Eh, he is very stubborn. Jonah. The story doesn't end there, though. And it could. It could end at the end of three. Hallelujah, the Ninevites have come to faith. But there is another key lesson for us because God has a purpose for Jonah. He will not leave Jonah where he is. He is going to get to the depths of Jonah's heart and reveal it that he might transform it. And he does that with each of us who gather to hear from him. He doesn't leave us where we are. He knows our pasts. He knows our current situations. He knows our future. And in all of it, he, all of it, he holds us And it is his delight 
It is his great joy to meet us where we are, to confront us, and to change us by his pursuing grace. Do you believe that this morning? Right at the beginning of chapter four, we see revealed in Jonah as the Ninevites are repenting, as they've turned to God, and as God is withholding judgment, the scripture says that it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The text literally says that it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. All right, last week we saw the Ninevites turning from evil so that they don't perish. We watched the most wicked people finding grace through repentance and this incredible gift, both of them gifts from God, a people who deserve death, abusers, murderers, torturers, and the list goes on and on, violent and evil. They receive grace. And here Jonah equates God's mercy in withholding judgment with evil. It didn't just displease him as if, ah, how disappointing. It displeased him to the point that he felt like God was in the wrong. It was exceedingly evil to him. And he's angry. Have you ever felt this way? where God withholds judgment and brings forgiveness? Or even the thought that God could withhold judgment? Even the thought that God could forgive someone who deserves punishment? There's a part in us that longs for justice. We long for justice according to our view. The first week together I told you about some friends that I sat with in Uganda, sat in the room and these were those who had suffered at the hands of Kony, who had come down from the north in Uganda. A terrible man, deeply demonic, deep witchcraft, so many stories. Coming into areas, killing, taking children, making them soldiers, turning them loose also to kill others under threat of being killed and watching this rebel army just devastate an area. Sitting with those who had suffered at the hands of those soldiers saying, ah, how could God ever forgive Kony? It would be evil, right? It would be wrong for God to forgive such a man. There's something that feels right there, and yet it is not right we see that through the story. I sat in a room with, at one time, with actually a, a, a child soldier, a former child soldier that had been a part of Coney's army. And he had been recovered. He had been able to escape and flee. And he sat in the room next to another who had been attacked and had to flee with her family. And had suffered at the hands of those people. What do you do in that situation? How do you respond to those who have wounded you so deeply that all you can see that they deserve is judgment? 
And that's where Jonah is. He is burning with anger. Sort of like Cain. And we've made a few references to Cain. We've seen some imagery of the story of Cain throughout these chapters, even as Jonah's prayer that that God has driven him from his presence. In Genesis 4, when God did not accept Cain's offering, he accepted Abel's, the scripture says that Cain was very angry and his face fell. And he was angry because Abel's offering was received, he was rejected, Cain wanted God to accept him on his own terms, not in faith. Abel was accepted because he came in faith, not on his own terms. Jonah wanted God to reject Nineveh on his own terms, based on their works, based on their deeds. Jonah wanted justice. Bring the abusers of humanity to justice. But he also knew the truth that God is forgiving and that God is merciful. And we can feel this tension within ourselves. We often want justice our way. And God is a God of justice. True justice, true justice exists because God is just. But God's justice does not always come about in the way that we want or expect, and Jonah has to face this, and we have to face it. And so we see Jonah's heart revealed. And in verse two, he prays. And this is his second prayer. Remember, he, he didn't pray through chapter one. He prays from the bottom of the sea, from the belly of the whale. And here he prays again, and he simply says, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Jonah's prayer is accusatory. Lord, I knew you were like this. I knew it. And that's why I wanted to stay away from Nineveh. That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, because I knew. And you know, Jonah's view of God was accurate. God does hesed. He does steadfast love. He shows mercy and compassion to people. It's who he is. But catch the irony of what Jonah is quoting to God in his prayer. Because this prayer originates in the book of Exodus. This language, as God reveals himself, God announces his character this way. And this is in Exodus 34. This happens actually after the people of Israel worship the golden calf. Moses is on the mountain. He's etching in stone the law. You must have no other gods before me. You must worship no other idols And there the people are worshiping idols. And God says to Moses, I am going to wipe out this stiff-necked, stubborn people. And Moses intercedes. 
he prays, God, no. The Egyptians will hear of it, right? Others will hear, Lord, what, what will you do for your name? This is your name. What about the promises you made to, your, to our forefathers? And he asks God to relent, and God does relent. He turns from his anger. He turns from the judgment, though there will yet be aspects of judgment that Israel will face. And then a little bit later, Moses says to God, show me your glory. And so God passes by. And as he passes by, he speaks out this name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But listen, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He goes on. There's a fuller announcement. And Jonah, interestingly, leaves that part off. And yet how ironic that Jonah is alive because of God's mercy to a people worshiping idols who deserve judgment. As God gives mercy to Israel, Jonah exists. If God had wiped out Israel, there's no Jonah. And the same is said for the promise to Abram that Moses quote, quoted. Remember the promise. And part of that promise was that the families of the earth would be blessed through Abram, through Abraham. And here is Jonah experiencing this amazing, steadfast love of God being revealed to the families of the earth. And you see the promise moving forward and taking root and going into nations. And here is Jonah brooding because he wanted justice on his terms. He was robbed of the joy of God's salvation because God didn't meet up to his expectations of justice on his terms. And he wanted his view of God's justice on his terms more than he wanted God's glory and God's name on God's terms. That's us. So often that's us. And for Jonah this was so deep that he would actually pray, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. We say, what? Better to die than to live? Jonah, you can't live with this knowledge or reality? This isn't the first time Jonah has wanted to escape. Because reality defined by God there's only one answer to that, and it's repentance. And Jonah wants his reality. And those lead to the seeds of death, seeds of despair, that he would rather die in a world where Nineveh is saved than live in a world where they're forgiven. This is deep wounding. 
Jonah has suffered deeply. We don't know how. We, we have no information. Family, friends, we don't know. But it's to the depth that we know he has suffered. And the evil of the Assyrians, we know. For most of us, our afflictions, our wounds are caused by those closest to us. It is parents, it's siblings, it's close friends, it's spouses, it's even church body. And often we can feel so righteous, so justified in our anger. We're tempted to believe the great lie. that says, this is hopeless. Justice must be done this way. It will always be this way. Or maybe even like Jonah, it's better to die than to live. Where despair takes root, death follows. And at the heart of Jonah's sin, At the heart of the seeds of this despair is the idolatry of himself. Please catch this. Jonah is self-absorbed. He is self-driven. He is trapped in his own perspective. His false perspective of himself, of others, his half perspective of God. He's trapped in the sin of life defined by the way he wants it. And his anger and bitterness is the fruit of these seeds in his life. These only can lead to despair and to death. And there is an enemy named Satan who loves to play on those emotions, who loves to drive that selfish perspective and even make it feel right. And yet it is wrong. And so what does God do? How does God respond to this? Does he leave Jonah in this most dangerous place? Because it is a dangerous place. Does he leave us in the dangerous place of our own hearts and our own perspectives? He does not. He comes and he confronts. And God simply asks a question in verse four. What he says, do you do well to be angry? It's a question that should resonate deeply in every one of us. Do you do well to be angry? If I can again use the Cain imagery, I think it's crucial here. Because as Cain is brooding in his own anger as his displeasure with God has caused his face to fall. God comes to Cain and says in Genesis 4, verses 6 and 7, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? And then you know what God says? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And then listen to this warning God gave Cain. Sin, its desire 
is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin's desire is for you. Those little seeds of bitterness, those little seeds of, of, of anger within, those little seeds of despair, sin wants to control, it wants to devour, it wants to take over and rule you. And God comes to Cain and says, do you do, you do well to be angry? Why are you angry? Sin's desire is for you. And could Cain rule over his sin? Do you remember that story? The answer is, everybody shake your head, no. Could Cain rule over his sin? No. Cain could not master his sin. And neither can you, and neither can I, and neither could Jonah. And as God comes and says, do you do well to be angry? The answer is no. And just as Cain's sin led him to kill his brother, Jonah's sin leads him to despair of his own life. And so for Jonah, it's a battle of faith and the deep-rooted sin in his heart, which leads him to anger ultimately with God. Now, I just want to camp here just for a minute because this issue is so crucial for us. Anger can be one of those tame sins, one of those things that are just part of being human, and it is, and it's just things that we deal with as we go through life and as we encounter frustrations and as situations don't meet up to our expectations. We find this response coming out of us that we cannot master. It's just there. Ultimately, anger is the fruit of not getting what we want or desire or think is best. It is a response to what we perceive as injustice or wrong or unmet expectations. It can be active, like blowing up. It can be passive, like the silent treatment. Verbalized or stuffed. When the thing that we love is ripped from our hands, when something stands in the way of what we want or what we think is best, when we can't have what we desire, when our expectations of ourselves, oh, self-anger. When our expectations of others, how could you? Even when good things, all that are even good things, gifts from God, when those things are removed, our idolatrous heart is revealed in the anger that follows. Paul David Tripp says this about anger. He says, I think if we're honest, we are living in a shockingly angry culture. I literally think anger is everywhere. It's the low burn anger of cynicism and irritation. It's around us all the time. It's why it doesn't take much. Someone pulls out in front of you when you're in the car. Somebody bumps you out of line at the grocery store and you're raging. Your emotional temperature changes that fast. It can be violent, explosive yelling and screaming. It can be an act of fury, even on behalf of somebody else to rescue them or preserve or defend them. It can be a dark act of self-injury or that desperate 
depressive repeating over and over of all the dark things others have done to you. We can seek to stuff those things down and in an instant they're triggered and they will come out. My brother Paul Kasubuda in Uganda, as he talked about his orphan heart, his, his journey through life when he lost his parents as a result of the war in the 80s, really after his parents left, he felt so upset with them for dying. And then the neighbors came and took all their stuff, took advantage of them, abused them, mistreated them. So angry, injustice, and wrong stuff deep down. And as he came to New Hope and as he went through uh, being brought into family and being cared for, you would find him in child after child after child. And I've worked with these kids that you could be playing, you could be having a good time, and in an instant, it's like something just erupts and you go, whoa, where did that come from? And Paul called it part of the orphan heart and in that he knew it's part of the human heart. It's part of our sinful nature and it's part of our nature that cries out, there's something wrong. In our anger, it's saying there is something wrong deep inside, like a broken bone that needs attention. There's something that needs addressed and healed, mended. And our anger points out there's something that needs to be dealt with in here. And so God says to Jonah, do you do well to be angry because God knows that that is what is pointing to the root of Jonah's issue that must be dealt with. James 4 says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. And yet how many times in our anger do we say, well, this is righteous anger? Right? As if righteous anger, like Jonah, as defined by me says, well, what you did was wrong and therefore my anger is right. <laughs> so it's righteous. And that is a wrong perspective of righteous anger. Because righteous anger always and only has at its core longing and desire for God's name and God's glory to be magnified for, against, for what has been done against God's character. That's righteous anger. And what that does is it centers anger on God because God is the one who tells us how to deal with the things that have triggered that response. And as we'll see, it's not always the way we expect because God turns these things upside down. We find even Jesus you go and love your enemies, right? It's a different response than what you expect. Lay down your life for them. That's crazy. And so let us not misuse righteous anger. Let it turn us to the righteous one who confronts us first and then who deals with the situations of life that we encounter. But the question is, do we trust God to deal with the situations of our lives that we do encounter? 
Do we trust God to deal with those who have hurt us? Do we trust God to deal with situations that are out of our control that we want to control? Do we trust God to change the people that we can't change? Do you do well to be angry? Where does our anger lead us? In that moment, I just want to see Jonah go, you're right, God, I repent. I want your perspective. I want your hesed. Salvation belongs to the Lord, right? I prayed that. How quickly has he forgotten his own words? The truth is, at times, it can feel powerful to hold God and others captive to our anger and to judge God based on our own terms. And in that, we repeat the fall a thousand times as we hold people captive to our judgments, as we believe we are the ones who have the right perspective. Jonah did not have the right perspective. And God is so gracious, brothers and sisters, that he doesn't end it here. Because he wants us to see that Jonah doesn't have the right perspective. He's going to confront Jonah with the right perspective. And in that, he confronts us with the right perspective. So in verse 5, Jonah goes out of the city. He sits to the east of it. He makes a booth for himself there. And he sits under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Right? And again, we don't know exactly what he's looking for here. Maybe he's hoping that God is going to reverse his mercy and bring the judgment he desires. I don't know. But he's waiting and he's watching. And then the scripture says in verse six, now the Lord God appointed, right? Right there we're going, oh, okay. Okay, everything God's appointed has been like for a serious purpose. He appoints a storm. He appoints a fish, right? And here he is now appointing a plant to make it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And what a great play on words here because again, it's that same word, evil, <laughs> right? God's gonna save Jonah from his evil and from his discomfort. And so God is compassionate as he brings a shade over Jonah. And you can just see J Jonah going, oh wow, this is crazy. This is amazing. And then look what it says. It says, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. It's like Jonah was bursting with excitement. Man, this is awesome. His joy was so great. And yet, his misplaced or extreme joy, it really is the other side of his anger. Because this extreme joy that the text is highlighting is not in proportion to the thing that he's delighting in. It's a plant. We'll see that play out. Ultimately, his extreme joy is revealing Jonah has an idol within himself, in his own heart. And I think this, there's something helpful I read from Desiring God years ago, an article called Discerning Idolatry in Desire. And it stayed with me over all these years. And just a, a couple of things that it said was, and I think this is helpful, that our enjoyments become idolatrous when they are disproportionate to the worth of what is desired. All right, what's the saying? Great desire for non-great things is a sign we're beginning to make those things an idol. 
I think you, if you're human, you should know what I'm talking about here. Great joy for non-great things is a sign we're making them an idol. Enjoyment is becoming idolatrous when it doesn't see in God's gift that God himself is to be more desired than the thing, than the gift. God is to be more desired than this. It's a, it's a sign that it's becoming an idol. Or when it's starting to feel like a right or a demand. Hot showers were an idol when we got to Uganda. All right? It was a right. Um, no, they were idols. Along with a thousand other things that God joyfully stripped away. Our enjoyments are becoming idols when the removal of them bring about depression or anger. And we're going to see this with Jonah. When we are given over to our idols in thought or in action, right, those idols, our false delight is not in proportion to the thing desired. We attach lies to it that this really does make me happy. It gives me something. They hold out false promises that they cannot deliver. And here Jonah's trapped in the idolatry of his own heart. Exceedingly glad. But verse 7. When dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm. Wow. It attacked the plant so that it withered. And if that's not bad or bad enough, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And let me tell you, that was hot. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. He's thirsty. He is Dizzy in a sense. This is terrible heat. And then he asked that he might die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. At this point, I I can just see Jonah in a sense in that heart shaking that fist I'm suffering for the Ninevites. God, you brought me here. This is, this is, this is, if, Keith, if Keith is Jonah, this is what Keith is saying. Lord, you brought me here to do this? You brought me here to suffer for you? You gave me this plant, and then you kill it? God, are you really good? Isn't that the question that comes? When things don't work according to our expectations, when even good things are, are taken away or when affliction comes into our lives, that's the question that rises up within us. God, are you really good? He can't see it in the moment, but God has a plan and a purpose because God is good. I'm going to say it again, because God is good, and he's working good for Nineveh, and for Jonah, and for us, and God speaks to him again in verse 9, second time, do you do well to be angry for the plant I don't know how God said it. That's how I see it. For the plant? Really? 
Do you do well? Look at Jonah's response. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die third time. And it's easy to mock Jonah here like a child throwing a tantrum. But I am Jonah. We are Jonah. Do we do well to throw our tantrums over the things that we get taken from our hands, over the vehicle that cuts in front of us? Do we do well to feel this way, to desire this, to pursue this? Do we do well to hide this, to cling to this? Do we do well to hold the seeds of bitterness and judgment and unforgiveness in our hearts? Do we do well to use our time here and here and here? Do we do well? But it's my right to feel this way. Yes, I do well. If you knew what I had to put up with. And you know the truth? The truth is that Jonah is not doing well and he is guilty. He is guilty of the sin of the Ninevites that he so despises. Do you remember Jesus' words in Matthew 5? Jesus said, you've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, right? But I say to you, everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there at the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. I would have loved to have seen Jonah go into Nineveh and delight in the joy of the city. Forgiven. Forgiven. When we judge according to our thoughts and when we hold others captive by our judgments, we are guilty. We are guilty. And God has set Jonah up and us for the grand finale of the book. Because God enters in in this place where Jonah says, yes, I do well. And God says in verse 10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know the right hand from the left and also much cattle. Then it ends. We're like, wait, what? <laughs> Is that not the craziest ending to any book in the scriptures? What happened? What happened to Jonah? What happened to the, the people? Because we know in a, a hundred years, Nineveh will be judged, and we know that their offspring turn back to wickedness. We know it. So what happens? The question hangs in the air. Should I not pity Nineveh? And God simply confronts Jonah's misguided priorities. A plant stuff his own justice, longing self. 
because Jonah had exalted things to the wrong place. And when we do this, we view ourselves and others in a misguided way. It might seem right, but it is oh so wrong. We can do this with truth. We can do this with good theology. We can make something so central that it's not central. We can convince ourselves it is, judge others by it when it is not and we should not. And we can miss out on life of hesed together with God and his people because Jonah missed out on that. We don't know what happened after this. Maybe he did go into the city. I don't know. But when we live this way, the Jonah that we've left in the story, when we live this way, it isolates us until we are the only ones left. Protected in our cocoon where no one can get to me or hurt me, where I can brood and feel and judge and feel right. Seeds of self-righteous anger. Should God have pitied Nineveh? Yes. Did Jonah do well to be angry? No. He did not do well to judge and accuse God. He did not do well to run away. He didn't do well in just about anything. But God. Remember, the story isn't ultimately about Jonah. Who's the story about? It's about the God of reversals, the God who turns things upside down, the God who took on the greatest injustice the world has ever known. Jesus, innocent, abused, crucified, that God might do hesed, covenant love with his people to free us through his pursuing grace. Jesus took on the unjust anger of the crowds, the anger that was directed towards him, though he was innocent. Crucify him, crucify him. And he took it because God appointed, God appointed a cross. And that is where he would die. He is the Hesed of God, the Savior and the Judge who bore our sins in his body, who took all the abuses, all the suffering, that we could be set free from our idols, from our misguided perspectives, our one-sided judgments, our unrighteous anger. And he took it and he bore it. Because like Cain, who could not master his sin, we cannot master our sin. No matter how hard you try, no matter how many books you read, you can't. You can't just wake up tomorrow and say, no more anger. And you can't change someone by telling them how bad they've hurt you and how much they should be punished. We can't. They won't change that way. The wounds that we have suffered are not big enough to change others. But the wounds of our Savior alone can bring change and healing and transforming grace into the lives of those who hurt us, those of us who have hurt others, because we are the same at our core. I'm Cain, I am Jonah, and I need a Savior, and they need a Savior. And we must meet at the cross 
And it's the cross that brings hope. It's the cross where I know God's justice will reign. It's at the cross that I know a savior will come who will judge the world because he didn't stay dead. He rose again and he reigns at the father's right hand and he's interceding better than Moses to Israel. And he's praying for you and he's praying for me and he's praying for the nations and his prayers are most effective. And he will judge. Justice will be done. And praise God that we in Christ do not stand under that judgment because we cannot stand. And the one who has mastered sin can master our sin. Well, we humble ourselves and repent and cry out to the one who has taken it and rest in that truth. And that we would love this gospel and that we would engage in this mission of being vessels of grace and mercy to others out of hearts that have been set free from our own hurts and afflictions, out of hearts that have found forgiveness to others because we have received forgiveness from the one and that we can take it out and suffer and know the joy of Christ that Paul wrote about. I rejoice in these afflictions because I want to see Christ formed in you That is the hope and the calling of the gospel. The book of 1 John, I think, is a great companion to Jonah. If any of you over the next few weeks want to just saturate in these truths, go and read 1 John. And see these same things just woven together as John writes his letter. Because it's all about the centrality of repentance and love and the mark of Christ in us. And he even says, don't be like Cain. He weaves Cain right into the letter. Abide in the love of Christ. And then he gets to the end of his letter. And you remember the last verse of 1 John? He says, beloved, keep yourselves from idols. And then he ends it. You're like, what? Where did idols come from? But it's the whole book. Just like all of Jonah, just like all of these issues are the rootedness of our idolatries into our hearts. And that's where Christ meets us and changes us. Let us respond and proclaim that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of Hesed. But let's proclaim salvation belongs to the Lord. And so I end this Jonah series by saying, beloved, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a great Savior. Lord, I just hear the beauty of your words in Colossians 3, that we would, we who've been raised with Christ would seek the things above where you are, that we would set our minds where you are because we have died. Our lives are hidden with you. And Jesus, you who are our life will appear and we will appear with you in glory. What great hope. 
Thank you that you are the God who enters into the depths of our hearts, draws out so that you might redeem and bind up and bring healing into these broken places and and freedom from the sin that clings so closely. We fix our eyes on Christ again and again. Lord, would you dig into each heart here in these days to come and would you bind up the hurting places in marriages and families and the things that our own hearts bow down to? May they be rooted out and cast down and that we would behold Christ together and that from this place you would raise up those who would go to the nations and the tribes and the peoples, that we would live for what is greater than ourselves and the treasure of Christ would be our treasure. Thank you, Lord. What abounding, steadfast love. In Jesus' name, amen.